In episode 43 of MobyCast, we conclude our series on the birth of NoSQL and DynamoDB. In particular, we take a deeper look at Leviathan, the NoSQL database created by Chris's startup in the late 90s, and we compare it to DynamoDB today. Welcome to MobyCast, a weekly conversation about containerization, Docker, and modern software deployment. Let's jump right in. All right, welcome, Chris and Rich, another episode of MobyCast. So, hey, Chris, you know, this is the second time we've gotten together now after the holidays, and I never asked you what you did. Anything interesting over the holidays? Yeah, it was really nice and relaxing. Got to uh, steal away a few days down on the Oregon coast with the family. Um, ah, beautiful. Very, very beautiful area and very relaxing. Excellent. How about you, Rich? What have you been up to here? What, did you do anything interesting or fun during the holidays? Yeah, I went back to New Jersey and spent time with my extended family. I'm pretty sure I didn't get out of sweatpants the entire time, which is usually the goal. Excellent. So yeah, it was good. Cool. So we do MobyCast from our sweatpants as it is. So there we go. <laughs> Speak <laughs> for yourself. My... <laughs> I dressed up for this. <laughs> as for my holidays, I stuck around Eagle, Colorado, because this is the place to be during the holidays. Like we're kind of close to the Eagle Airport. You know, you can see the planes coming in as they go towards the Eagle Airport from our front window. And around the holidays, we just see that traffic pick up from a plane an hour to a plane every two minutes. So people were streaming in, getting ready to get their Christmas in the mountains on. And it was a good thing to do. It was a a white Christmas here in the mountains. So yeah, over the last four episodes, we've been talking about DynamoDB and we are not done. We got into, you know, just the real detail of the physical sort of and logical architecture of DynamoDB. I guess really the logical architecture of DynamoDB how the sharding works and how the what a storage node consists of and and the request router the partition metadata system and we didn't really talk much about auto admin except for towards the end but this week we're going to kind of keep all that architecture in mind and go back and visit revisit where this all started which is with the company that chris founded called viathan and the company that he founded several years before DynamoDB was even a twinkle in Werner Vogel's eye so yeah let's maybe chris if you could just help me do a little bit better job of the of the recap just in a couple minutes of where we were with the DynamoDB architecture? Go ahead. Sure, yeah. So with with, uh, with DynamoDB, we kind of called out the high-level components and those were the, the request router. That was the front end to the system. That was what all clients using DynamoD, they're hitting that front end and that request router is responsible for figuring out where the data is that's being requested to either be read or, or written to. Where does it live? Which storage node partition is it on? And so that was the other one of the other major components we talked about were these these storage nodes and these are those home partitions for all the data that's in DynamoDB. They they're composed of three components. There they have the the leader, the storage node leader, and then there's two secondaries which are represent the the replicas. And we also talked a little bit about the fact that the default behavior for DynamoDB is to be eventually consistent, so it doesn't wait for all secondaries to be updated before it re- returns back a response. Although you can configure that to say that you do want it to be strongly consistent, but there's trade-offs with that kind of decision. We also talked about the partition metadata system, kind of like the routing tables, if you will, for DynamoDB and, and given a particular piece of data, where does it live? And then you have auto admin, which is their kind of integrated monitoring, healing. Uh, Repartitioning. Just re, yeah, just basically all that kind of housekeeping that goes on with kind of running a system like this that's so dynamic and where you do need to, to reshuffle things periodically. So they had the auto admin component. So those those were the four primary components that we talked DynamoDB and keeping those in mind will serve useful as we go into this this next discussion about okay, well what was what came before that? What was Leviathan? 
great. And you know that the, all four of those things sound fairly complex when you just listen to their names, but it's really just easy. It's like you've got some data, you want to stick it somewhere. You got a lot of data, it's in a lot of different places. So you have request routers to get you to where your data is, and you have a partitioning metadata system to kind of remember where everything is. It's like you're <laughs> for some reason I'm thinking of the that whole idea of having a castle in your mind where you where you put different it has different rooms so you can remember things like oh I put this memory in this part of the castle. That's your partition metadata system. So yeah, let's move away from DynamoDB and go back, roll back the clock a little bit and talk about the Leviathan architecture. Sure, you bet. And maybe just a quick recap. You know, we, we talked about this in previous episodes. If you haven't listened to the, the previous episodes in this series, definitely go back and, and do so. But, you know, before DynamoDB in the late 90s, I was working at a startup and we had the same kind of problems that DynamoDB had. The reason why DynamoDB came about where how do you scale your database dealing with internet scale applications and have this virtual pool of just infinite storage that can be scaled out. So that was what that company was trying to do. The product, we called this this NoSQL database that we we're building. It was the code name was Leviathan. And so... Just have to interrupt you, which which remember is part of the whole Moby Dick theme of everything we ever talk about <laughs> yeah. here at Calsis and ProDocker training. Indeed. <laughs> so yeah, so maybe digging into that a little bit. Again, it was really interesting for me whenever I see like the discussions about DynamoDB, about like what were the pain points, why it came about, what are the high level components? And then when I sat in on this this deep dive during reInvent of like what's the architecture look like for DynamoDB, it's it's super interesting because it is really similar to the work that that was on on Leviathan. And so just like with DynamoDB, there's we talked about the four main architecture components. We can also talk about, you know, there's primarily four main architecture components for Leviathan as well. A little bit different, but pretty close. So the first one would be the the API API client itself. We'll get back to this, but in the Leviathan architecture, the, the API client itself is very much a key piece of the distributed system. Then we it's, had it's the front door to Leviathan. It is. I mean, it, it was the API implementation. I mean, we, we were, you know, this is late 90s. So things like RESTful APIs didn't really exist. The, the ecosystem wasn't there for kind of having like this, this same kind of like API driven development that we have now. So mm-hmm. typically what you did is you, you built an API. It was a, a, a custom API and, you know, you may have your own wire protocol. You, you may go over HTTP, you may not. And then you typically delivered that functionality via an SDK. Mm-hmm. And so that SDK was basically, you know, client-side code libraries that someone that, that wanted to use this API, they would they would link in those libraries and get that code to use it. So that ended up being the way that we delivered our functionality, the way that folks would consume this functionality and, and hook into this storage system. And because it wasn't just an API, but it was also code, we could then, you know, add additional, put additional value out of functionality into it so it ends that's up the being... only part that, that doesn't happen anymore right so like even with http apis i'm yet to meet a developer that isn't like uh you have an sdk <laughs> is there any way i can not have to write all that http handshaking logic and just get you know use the sdk please but the part that we don't do anymore is stick much beyond just the the communications into that into that sdk exactly yes yeah in in our particular case like we didn't really have a choice here so yeah so that that was one of the key components and Another one, we named it the Update Distributor, or UD for short, and this was a, a piece of the system that was responsible for handling write requests. 
A third component was, we called it the base server, for lack of a, of a better name. And this was really our, our storage node. And so this was what, basically where the data was was stored. It dealt with everything else around it. So very, very similar to the storage node concept in DynamoDB. And then the fourth component is, we called it Shepherd. And Shepherd was our management system, the way of doing a housekeeping, the way of knowing when to do partition splits. It was responsible for migrating data when it had to from one partition to another one or whatnot. So all the, basically everything that you, you know, managing state, I mean, it also kept track of the cluster and partition maps in our system. So when we talked about DynamoDB, they they broke out their, their, their partition metadata system is separate from auto admin with us. It was for the purposes of this talk, it was all combined into the one component, which we call Shepherd. Interesting. So those are the four key components. There's also some things that we may talk that may come up during the rest of this conversation are some additional core components that we have, which were one we called smart IP. This you don't need anymore because now we have things like elastic load balancers. But back then we didn't have that. So we came up with this this term smart IP, which was essentially a virtual IP, a way of having a single way of addressing a cluster of resources and having the, the load balancing and the being done across that set and being able to dynamically change the set of nodes that are in that particular that are behind that particular IP address. Mm-hmm. So we had to build that ourselves. And so so we had that. And then another kind of core system component we had was we called it our it was our storage abstraction layer or SAL. And it was a, a layer that was used by our base server, this that storage nodes capability to have it interface with what was actually being used as the persistent store. And so we had this concept of basically abstracting that. I'm the, a little confused by this. This is the one piece so far that I'm like, huh, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. So, you know, this, the, this system and this technology went through many iterations. In the first iteration, the storage nodes where we were using relational databases as the as the storage oh, okay, right? so this storage abstraction layer what it would do is it would make it so that it could speak a common language and you could plug in you know maybe microsoft sql server or oracle db yeah as your as your storage node right so that's what that that was and eventually it grew to become you know even more capable where it's not just talking to relational databases but what about file systems sure as sure. well so yep. so that's what there, there was this the rec- recognition that the base server had some common logical features and, and functionality that it it served and that was irregardless of what how it was actually storing it on you know persistent to disk or whatnot so things like caching and the query engine all that stuff was up at the in the base server level and then when we had to go actually persist it out then we went through that storage abstraction layer I just can't help myself at the moment that you were building that part of your system is, is when you could have also been like mm, this company is now spending a great deal of money on on a piece of the system that's not you know it's like ah what's the best way to put this in startup terms you're building something and you don't have anybody using it that's like in a a startup if you can't get people to use like the steel thread that goes all the way through like hey here's the opinionated version of this if people are like not willing to use the opinionated version then making each each little piece like really super configurable probably isn't the solution but i digress like it's just like as soon as i heard that i was like oh my god that's that's 
that's like a lot of engineering for a startup that probably didn't have any you know customers at that point. Yeah, I mean, maybe kind of like paradoxically, it, it was actually probably cleaner to do it this way because it forced us to componentize the way sure. we were thinking about things, right? So like we could have had like just hard-coded Microsoft SQL queries littered throughout like the base server. Would that and, have gotten us? And we had like a few people on the team like that were like SQL experts, right? Not everyone right. was. So there were definitely benefits to, do, to doing that. And so it wasn't so much for the ability to go and support like anything out of the gate. Okay. It was a lot of this was more for just architectural reasons. Okay. okay. I wouldn't let you do it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, anyway, got, I got to get off that. Like this is this is like a constant thing for me is like over like sort of over engineering that startups do. So that's why I was grabbing on that. All right. So yeah, let's just keep talking about where this like what were some of the aha moments that were happening for you as you were sort of thinking about your old architecture and thinking about DynamoDB. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so maybe just dive in a little bit deeper into what those four primary components do. So again, the API client, in a way that you can kind of think of this is this is the equivalent of parts of the request router in the DynamoDB system. So we didn't have that. Instead, we because we actually had code running on the clients, we could include them as part of the actual system itself. And so things like the equivalent of the partition metadata that was pushed into the clients. And what this gave rise to is that when they were doing read operations, they wouldn't have to go through an intermediary service. They could actually go talk directly. They, they would they would have all the information that they, they needed to go straight to the right base server. So kind of interesting, different. I mean, there's, there's definitely pros and cons to it, but you are reducing. It's one last path that you're going through on the read case. Was there a situation with that where different clients could get out of sync with each other and that be a problem? Well, I mean, there's lots of consistency problems and synchronization issues and like what happens if, if some state changes and how do you get it distributed to all them, to all the players in the system in, in a way that's safe and still meaningful. So absolutely, there are lots of pretty challenging problems throughout this, this whole system. But in general, you know, without diving deep into, you know, all those various techniques can say that, you know, for the most part, the simple case of like, hey, I got to go read some data, having the information necessary there to go get it. That was doable. And there was techniques and parts of the system that handled what, you know, what happens when it did get out of date or, or whatnot. Right. Well, I imagine that a connected client is kind of always saying, hey, let me know if the, if the sort of map of where the data is has changed. And if it does, then it grabs a new map of where all the data is. And then if a client is not connected for a while and then connects like that, it probably has to go ask for that before it's allowed to do any work. Yeah, I mean, there, there's versioning and there's, you know, it's very, there's a lot of event-driven components into this system so that when changes do happen, that, I mean, this is essentially distributed caching, right? Yep, so exactly. And not an easy thing to do, but but definitely solvable. And so that's really kind of what it came down. And a lot of times it's, you know, you can't have a 100% consistent state, right, across everything. It's just impossible. There's just timing issues, right? So how do you detect when you are at a state, right? And what do you, how do you do the right thing? And, you know, what happens when you now have a cash conflict type thing? So mm -hmm. all that stuff had to be thought through and, and dealt with. And 
you know, again, a lot of that functionality went into the to these API clients. So again, given that we this was written in either C code or Java code, and you know, there was the code to handle that in that. That was going to be one of my questions. So was most of the Leviathan was it mostly C, mostly Java, mostly C plus plus? Yeah, it was it was all C plus plus, and and really just using C plus plus as a better C. So not a lot of like not tremendously object oriented used okay. classes sparingly where it made sense and mm-hmm. um, inheritance where it made sense. But for the most part, it was it was C code. And the the only Java code was for our Java based SDK, oh, the right. Java the Java API, right? Because we we knew we had to support that out of the gate. We had to support, yeah, for sure. No you know, question. Two thousand one Java, nineteen ninety nine Java. Yeah, it was either Java or Windows, right? That's what mm-hmm. that's what people are running. So we knew we had to support those two environments, and so Java was our answer, also for you know Unix and Linux type thing. Right. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, and the, I guess I'm just thinking about the fact that you know the big the big difference between DynamoDB and Leviathan that we've talked about so far is the you know the request router and partition metadata system living on the server versus living out at the edge, mm-hmm. and it's just fascinating to me because that sort of back and forth just happens and happens over and over. Like one year it's better to push stuff out to the edge because you get better scalability and you know less work to, for the servers to do. So a, a speedier little system, distributed system that you've got going. And then the next thing it's like no, but then it's hard to do updates and you can have out of date clients. So let's do everything on the server and then the next thing is like oh well you can push out code from the server so let's just do it that way again and like we can never really decide as a group community as software developers on really where the balance is best and we, we keep like vibrating across either side of that balance yeah i mean and it's just like technology in general just the, the constant iteration and you know different techniques and there's technological advances and things like you know bandwidths changing and and number of you know cpu powers changing and you know the cloud versus on-prem that changes things and whatnot so it does you know every time you go to design a system right there's there's not necessarily it's not necessarily one right way of doing it and you know maybe yeah this year the doing something pushing it out and have it you know on the edge the work being done on the edge makes makes sense for your particular application versus you know some other application because of some some changes in you know cloud or some new service that you have available to you and maybe you don't need to maybe there's some constraint that you can put into your system where it makes sense that you should do stuff on you know the server side and keep it central it would not Um, surprise me whatsoever if if aws did something like oh we've you know we've created a new feature of dynamodb smart edge processing where they essentially push the request router and partition metadata system out to like green grass edge type stuff so like it can be even faster for you know systems that are doing iot or whatever Mm -hmm. i I wouldn't be surprised at all especially because can't you already run dynamodb locally it's not a thing yeah you can run dynamodb locally it's um, that's mostly for testing and just development right but absolutely you know with with iot and what what aws is doing with greengrass you also have snowball and adding in its edge computing capabilities so i mean the things that can be done at the edge will be done at the edge and and usually almost always makes sense to do so you just have to balance out like there's what's the overhead of doing that so if you can make it so that there's very little state shared between these things that are out on the edge and kind of like phoning back home to a central data center then you can scale out very easily and you do want to 
push that computing to the edge and mm-hmm. not have to do that computing inside your cloud, inside your data center. When it's more of a bi-directional communication path, mm-hmm. then you start running into a whole bunch of, of problems, right? Like it's now as you scale up, it becomes exponentially more difficult to handle that and becomes more complicated. So it just it just really depends on you know your situation and what it is that you're trying to do, what the constraints are, what the what the access patterns are to decide what's the the best thing. For us, and this is a good point, right? Because with us, this was very much kind of more of a closed system. So our clients were, again, these are heavy clients. They're going into application code for services that are consuming this, this storage service. So this was a closed system and you would have an instance for every every network that you had or every data center that you may have had, right? It didn't really support the concept of like, this wasn't designed to be run as a like software as a service type thing. And you wouldn't right. have multiple applications. There were ways to do namespace partitioning to have multiple applications. But for the most part, I think this is like each customer would have their own implementation, right? It wasn't like one implementation for millions of, of other app, of clients out there. And so with with that having you know these thick clients that were active members of the distributed system that kept that number finite so it, was, it wasn't it wasn't really a, an issue right we knew mm-hmm. that there was going to be like tens of these things or hundreds of these things it wasn't like with DynamoDB DynamoDB is is offered as a service and you have you know you can have tens of thousands or hundreds hundreds of thousands of clients so pushing state out into those clients like that like that would be much more problematic right yeah and you another thing you mentioned that you were able to do because it was a closed system is being strongly consistent versus DynamoDB's eventually consistent model? So this gets into that update distributor component. So we've talked about like the read path. So because we have these thick clients and they have access to the metadata in the system, they can figure out which smart IP address for which storage server that they need to go talk to for the read pass. For the write pass, they went through this component called the update distributor. And this one, this was responsible again for every every mutation. So every creator of update request or delete, those requests would go through it. And its responsibility was basically to do the replication. And so it was essentially doing a two-phase commit across multiple replicas. And so that's why why our system was strongly consistent. This was just the um, design approach we took from the get-go, is that basically we would have this synchronous two-phase commit style replication of these write commands so that they would be replicated to at least two base servers, but it would do that all synchronously and then reach and then return back to the caller that, you know, now that that write is complete. So that's why we were strongly consistent, you know, with the difference with DynamoDB is with DynamoDB, they're doing those those writes to the secondaries via true replication. So they're they're going, I don't know exactly like the details, whether they actually have like their actual storage node has code where it's doing the, the actual writes itself or whether they're writing the logs and there's a replication component that's reading from the logs and, and then forwarding the, you know, making those updates on the the, the secondaries. I would um, guess the latter, but yeah, who knows? Yeah, but that was the that was the approach that they took there. So I want to interrupt you for just a second because you're talking about two phase commits, and I'm just thinking about our audience. And one of the things I've noticed in the past twenty years is that there's less and less talk of transactions among developers for whatever reason. I just remember it being a constant theme of daily design and architecture conversations around the office in from like 2000 to 2005 or so, and then just it's like the whole idea just disappeared. We're not worried, you know, I think it's because it all got subsumed into libraries and tools that people use in a way that was good enough that if you have to think about transactions, you're, you know, now you can count yourself among the senior developers. But yeah, can you just tell us, I mean, tell us what a 
transaction is and tell us what a two-phase commit transaction is. Yeah, I mean, and two-phase commits are basically just a way of, of implementing a, a transaction in a distributed system with, with multiple participants. So transaction just means something, you're you're wrapping a sequence of, of one-to-end commands and you want that all to run together as one unit. And so it either all of it succeeds or if any one of those things doesn't succeed, then the entire thing fails and you don't change any state whatsoever, right? So yep. you, could, you could have a series of, of commands, like, like five different commands that you're doing. You could be updating like five different pieces of data and maybe it's across like even two systems. So you want all that to happen as one atomic unit. And if it doesn't, then nothing should be changed. And so you have to have a way of reverting, if you will. Like if you're trying to, again, if you have five commands and the first three commands succeed and then the fourth fails, well, then you have to roll back, right? So you yep. have to undo what was done on those first three. So two-phase commit, it's a technique where basically it's just saying, look, hey, we're the first phase is going in and doing this update across all of the components. And then the second phase is getting back the response that, yep, that happened correctly. And then go ahead and committing it, if you will, to say now that this this should be available now in the system and and, and it's now committed to the to the system. Yeah. So phase one is like send out the work, have it all so that it all gets done somewhere else. Phase two is get all the acknowledgements back that the work was done and collect them all. Mm -hmm. Once you've got got them all collected, then go ahead and lock it down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So that's that's what our update distributor basically did. So it did that, and we actually had the concept where it, we weren't just you didn't have to have just two replicas. You could have as many as you wanted, and so you would. This allowed you to scale out for read operations, right? So we, we were very much interested in read performance. That was by far the dominant traffic coming through the system. So to go and, and have multiple replicas of your base server and allow any one of those to be read from, the more you had, right, the more your read throughput was. And if your write throughput was a small fraction of your read throughput, then the overhead of the two-phase commit to go across N resources definitely was a good trade-off having the the multiple replicas for your increased read performance so that was that was the update distributors job cool um, and yeah and then just i guess the the last thing to talk in a little bit of detail would be that shepherd component so this was one of the ones that the really hard discussions this is where the hard problems were and how do you deal with these consistency issues how do you deal with these timing issues and synchronous issues how do you know who is what and who's the manager who's the who should be the leader who's the master as opposed to who's a you know who the replicas and how do you deal with with failures and whatnot. So Shepard, we we ended up building this as it was a central there was a central service, but then we had agents. So it was also part of it was an agent that would go on each one of the machines that was part of the system. There'd be the Shepard agent running on it. So there was this it was this bi-directional communication between them. So we had a separate management protocol, basically a, a control plane, if you will, for the system, and that was implemented through Shepard and its and its agent-based architecture. And so Shepard would give you an overall view of the system. It, it it was what allowed you to add new nodes to the system or remove nodes. It would detect failures. It would be responsible for health checks. It handled all the metadata, the partitions, the clusters, and everything else associated with it. And then it did data migration, which was a pretty big topic for us as well to deal with. So whenever you sure. had these splits that had to happen, so a partition got too hot, you needed to split it, and now you would have to move data from one base server to another one. And you know how do you do that in a, in a way that's consistent and safe? So that it had um, functionality for that as well. Yeah, right on. And you know, while it's a shame that so much really good engineering 
engineering didn't get much use, it is cool to see that that the intellectual property that you created and registered with with the patent office, you know, got revisited and got put into, you know, got essentially listed as the the foundations of DynamoDB. Oh, go ahead. I just say, yeah, it would be interesting someday to, you know, and you know, find out just, you know, how much if if there was any cross pollination there, if it was just kind of like serendipitous, like same same problem space and similar solutions being developed type thing. So and it, it could be, you know, it, like on the one hand, it's like, well, this is a really specific system and it sure is interesting to see how closely the two are aligned. But on the other hand, it is, you know, it's a very specific problem too. It's like, how do you, how do you get data and access it across many, many nodes efficiently? And mm-hmm. it sort of is, it sort of does lend itself to a certain way of thinking about things. Yep. I have a question for you though. What do you know when, when is the last time that Leviathan got booted up and run on a machine or multiple machines? Oh, that was a long time ago. I was wondering if you tried to try to give it a, you know, <laughs> no, it would it would it would be so challenging to do so. You know, it would have to be. Uh, I mean, this was all built on like Windows 2K. It was um, all Windows stuff. Yeah, that makes it harder. I think if it would have been just kind of pure, if it had been Linux stuff, it might be easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think but, the rate of change in in the Linux you know systems is sort of slower and yeah. the backwards compatibility better. Yeah, yeah. This is very. It was very low level system code. Right. We actually use some of the kernel APIs. I think as well with with NT some of the undocumented kernel APIs so it would be very challenging but you know not impossible I mean the I, source code is still here and so like it's just a matter of you know the truth is there's probably there is if you I'm sure if you go onto AWS right now there's an AMI for Windows 2K server so oh yeah yeah uh, definitely you know given that and then you know at that point it's just you need the Visual Visual Studio for the compiler right the the Microsoft C++ compiler and if you can get that then like you're good to go and you can fire it up but I think the last time that this was probably run was probably like 2001. Again, at Viathan, we went through some iterations and some different domain changes with this. So this was the the first iteration of this technology was using this adaptive partitioning architecture against using relational databases as the storage mechanism and really abstracting at the database level. We then took the same technology and repurposed it for file systems. And that became kind of like the much more the focus and that actually continued to live on beyond the company a bit as well so we did that just because it, the the friction associated with adopting the technology was so much less with the file system because there were no code changes that that need to happen we could provide the basically our clients as like SIFs or NFS drivers and by doing so it just became very easy for folks to to now you know adopt this technology so this ended up, in, again, like I said, it's almost the exact same technology architecture and whatnot. It's just a different base server is, is really what we were dealing with. And basically, we, you had a, a full-blown, like, virtualized file system with infinite scale. And that was the, the, the next iteration of this technology for that company. Huh, interesting. So you built more or less EFS out of your Leviathan. Yeah, it was more like S3. In that more like you S3. Could, okay. you could, yeah, you could, you could you know, store a file. But also, yeah. 
yeah. I mean, it was kind of similar to, I guess you're right. It was actually closer to EFS because the way that we hooked into it was through the file system driver. We didn't want to require people to write code, right? So right. That, that lended more towards like, okay, this is just a big virtual file system. It's yeah. your Z drive or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the actual technology and the primitives were actually closer to what S3 does, but the way that it was adopted kind of felt more like EFS probably. Super interesting. Well, I think I guess we should probably wrap it up, but this has been fascinating to talk about Leviathan and your history and DynamoDB and its future yeah. and how, you know, 20 years on, they are still getting around to some of the features that you had built 20 years ago. It's been, it's been super interesting and, and fun for me to kind of look back and just, again, just be amazed by how much is just the same, like the same problems and a lot of things haven't changed. So as fast as technology change is like, and we've talked about this before in previous episodes, like it is cyclical and there are certain patterns and techniques that do dominate. And you know, I think this is an example where that's indeed the case. Right. And I'm reminded of a conversation I had with you a few years ago, I think, where I was telling you about this company that I worked for or, you know, did some contracting with called Taz. And I was telling you how they had one developer that decided to just do everything and see. And this was like, you know, long after anybody was building any kind of web backends and see, but for some reason he was. And then not only was he doing that, but he had decided to build his own his own document database, despite the existence of Mongo at the time. And I was telling you how he had done sharding and had done, you know, some replica stuff. And I was like, why is he building all this? This all exists. And I, I just kind of remember you being like, mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, that'll be that. I mean, and again, it's one thing to, to do like the base stuff, like to get the, to handle like 80% of the situation, you know, handle the, eight, the first 80%, like you can just do that by like those main pieces, right? Like having things like sharding and some replication and, and the document portion of the database, but it's the last 20% that is so uh, yeah. hard, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's the stuff that prevents you from actually deploying and from actually like running, you know, in, in some kind of available fashion. All right, well, let's leave it for next week. And next week, we're gonna have a new topic. We haven't decided yet what it's gonna be, but looking forward to talking to you again and, and hope everybody enjoyed. Sounds good. Well, dear listener, you made it to the end. We appreciate your time and invite you to continue the conversation with us online. This episode, along with show notes and other valuable resources, is available at mobicast.fm forward slash four three. If you have any questions or additional insights, we encourage you to leave us a comment there. Thank you, and we'll see you again next week.